If you want to open up your Bibles, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1. So last week we started a study on Ephesians, this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, and looked at the first couple of verses uh, last week. Today I want to look at a larger chunk. Um, if you want to follow along with me, you can read on the screen, Bible, iPhone, however you uh, read your Bible these days. But Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verse 3 through 14, it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put in effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal and promised the Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Wow. Very wordy, eloquent introduction to this letter. I mean, when you read it, you're like, there's a lot going on here. These are some like big words, big concepts. I think we all have like that aunt in our life, the older aunt who just prays really well. When you hear her praying, it's like this different language takes over. She's using these super eloquent words. She has like this different voice that she talks to God in. Uh, it's like a different cadence, and you hear and you think, like, I could never pray in public when I hear. She probably loves this kind of passage, right? Uh, when you read it, you, you find that it, it's, it doesn't seem super, super, like, personal or warm, which is interesting for Paul, because Paul's usually very personal in his letter writing. Uh, but it, but it's, it's very eloquent, and it's actually this kind of proclamation, and it has, it, it's poetic and beautiful in, in, in how it's written. And so, like, reading it, it, you, it it's kind of a mouthful uh, to read it out loud. But when you read it, you see these huge kind of concepts that are, are happening. And what, and what we find is that is, is this is placed at the beginning of a letter that he's written to a church. And last week we talked about how this, this letter probably was circulated with a bunch of churches in the area. And this idea that he's trying to get across to these people is that you've been blessed by every spiritual blessing in Christ. You've been given such an amazing gift because this God who loves the world that is redeeming the world is, is with you. And because of that, your lives, you're, you're loaded with unbelievable potential to join God in his work in this world. And as you read it, and we find that it's not super personal as an introduction to a letter, um, it does sound poetic. And what, what, what is a possibility is that maybe this was some sort of like doc, doxology or hymn that was sung in these early churches in the first century. And Paul decides to put this song, this beautiful uh, written uh, him into this letter. 
And so there's a couple ways that we, we can approach it as we, as we consider what Paul is trying to communicate here. And the first is I think there's this historical approach to what he's writing. As Paul's writing in this letter, there's, there's this chronological order of the story of Scripture that is found here. Uh, what you can find is, is underneath kind of like the language that he uses, talking about Christ, underneath that is this salvation story that's been going on all the way back in the Old Testament. This language of God's people who are enslaved in Egypt, and they're crying out for God to save them from the things that enslave them. And finally, God intervenes. There's this deliverer. There's this redeemer who comes and, and sets his people free from Egypt. Paul's kind of using that language, and he's, he's saying this thing that happened, this story of salvation that happened, that we, we know is this historical thing with this group of people, that's actually happening personally, in our heart, in our soul. This work that God is doing in the world where he's setting these people free, that's also happening here. It starts small, it starts inside of us. It's this cosmic story, this large story, but it's also this small story that starts here and now. And through understanding the larger story, we start to understand kind of our smaller story. It starts to make sense in light of this larger story. What Paul's doing here is he's connecting these people to this bigger story of what God's doing in the world. Sometimes being connected to a bigger story makes sense of our smaller stories. And I know this because we have things that we do that connect us to larger stories. There's this place in our culture, in our world, that we go to. And when we go there, we know that we share a, a shared experience. It's similar. When we go there, we know uh, that, that when we, we go to this place, uh, we know what to expect. Um, we know uh, that, that we, we share kind of this experience what everyone else has gone through when they go to this place. This place is called the DMV. <laughs> everyone has this experience. You go to the DMV, and you're never like happy when you're going there, because it's always either like you've got in trouble, or you've got to change something, and you're walking in already kind of like negative. You get there, you draw a number, and you find that it's number 78. And you look up at the screen and you see that they're on number four. And you scan the lobby and there's like 12 people. And you're wondering where the other 74 numbers come from. And you go and you sit down and you're always sitting in between the older man who's wearing sunglasses inside and Aunt Gertrude who's doing a crossword puzzle, right? And you quickly find that, you know, she's been here for two and a half hours and this is what you can expect and like the crossword puzzles actually like a book of crossword puzzles and like we all have this experience in the DMV that we know it's going to take forever. It's this larger narrative that we experience and then you find that everyone else has had this experience and I know this is true because last year we took our children to see an animated movie called Zootopia. Some of you have seen Zootopia. Uh, that, you know, it's like this, this animal world, um, like there's a, there's a police, there's a cop, and she's like a, a bunny rabbit, she's really fast, there's like a detective, he's a fox because he's sly, and then they go to the DMV, and who's running the DMV? The sloths, yes. Very slow talkers, right? And I, I'm watching that with my children, and I'm like, this is a movie made for them, and I am like in tears, cracking up laughing, because they have like, captured the essence of this experience at the DMV. And all of us who are adults who have had that just get it. We get it. We are like, we understand this experience. We've had a story. We've had experience here. But it's part of this bigger kind of narrative where we all kind of dread 
going to the DMV. It's that way with dentists too, but my brother-in-law's a dentist, so I'm not going to go there. <laughs> but I think that Paul's doing this. He's, he's capturing this bigger story that we're all a part of when he's writing to the Ephesians, and he opens up in this like, poetic uh, introduction of his letter. He reminds them, this is our story, this is your story, but we're part of this bigger story of salvation that is unfolding. There's this chronological order to it. What God has done in the Old Testament with the people of Israel, he's now doing here with his people, and he's doing that for you here and now. There's this salvific work that is taking place in your heart, in your soul. And when you're around other people, when we gather here on Sunday and we sing these songs, it reminds us we're in the DMV together, right? Except for maybe more positive, like, obviously. So when we, we take on this passage and, and we hear these big words of Paul, what we're finding is there's this kind of historical aspect to what he's doing. He's pointing them back so that they understand the present and the future of where this is heading. The second kind of approach that we can take to this text is a theological approach. A theological approach um, in, in what he's laying out. There's these big concepts here that if you, you kind of grow up in church, you're used to words like doctrine, and you're, 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 you're used to like talking and working out these concepts that are going on. But one of the things that I think is just so beautiful that, that Paul places in the introduction of this letter is this idea of the Trinity. If you grew up in church, you understand what the doctrine of the Trinity is, right? This God in three persons, the Godhead, God, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we try to explain that. It's like infinitely complex, and yet it's very simple. And we try to explain it to people, and we sound crazy. And, but this is how we have experienced how God is at work in this world, the nature of God, what he does. And what you're, you read is you, like Paul starts to kind of have these, this theological concept of how God is at work, and he starts with this idea that the Father, the Father, verses 3 and 4, chose you. There's this kind of, uh, there, there's these eternal purposes to what God is doing in this world. God the Father. Has it, he's initiated this thing. He's, he's called us. He's chosen us. He's acting in this world with us, initiating relationship. God acting as a father. And then this idea of the son, like this work takes place through Jesus. In verse 7, we find the redemption of our, our sin, our brokenness. There's this act that takes place with Jesus on the cross. There's this act that Jesus does where he, he intervenes in this world. And we find that the salvation comes from this act of Christ in verse 7. And then as this passage continues to unfold, we get the Holy Spirit. Verses 13 and 14, it starts to talk about this idea that the Holy Spirit, now God is acting in the midst of our human experience. He's doing something in our lives, and we're united with the Spirit. It's empowering his people. There's power that comes. It's this glimpse of this, this future destination that we belong to, the, the kingdom of God that all of a sudden we have access to here and now. And the people of God have power because of this Holy Spirit that is with him. There's this theological concept here where, where Paul's talking about this Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that is found in this passage. I love it what uh, Eugene Peterson says about the Trinity. He says, it is commonly said that the Trinity is a mystery, and it certainly is. And I would say where this historical approach kind of has a chronological order, well, this theological approach has this mystery to it, how God is at work in our life. But it is not a mystery veiled in darkness in which we can only grope and guess. It is a mystery in which we are given to understand that we will never know all there is of God. 
It is not a mystery that keeps us in the dark, but a mystery in which we are taken by the hand and gradually led into the light. So we interact with how God is at work in this world. We find Paul writing very poetically this beautiful dance with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, working for salvation, redemption, a blessing. We find that in this passage. There's this historical approach, there's a theological approach, and then there's a practical approach, even in this introduction, where there's not like super applicable advice to it. There's this kind of practical approach that we can take, and as I had kind of thought through this passage and, and teaching on it, uh, one of the things that I've kind of reflected on is, is coming to understand that this story that Paul's talking about, that goes back to the Old Testament, that is the story that is found in what Jesus has done in this world, the story that is found in what Jesus is inviting us into and empowering the church to do, I've come to understand that uh, because it's been told to me. And here's one thing I would say is when we understand the story that Paul's talking about is that everyone has someone that has told them the story. My guess is that if you are a follower of Jesus, it's because somebody else in your life has told you the story. We all have someone. We all have someone that has explained this to us, led us, loved on us, never given up on us. We all have someone, and that's how we know the story. I think for me, it's probably my mom. I think that's interesting. My dad's a pastor. Uh, very early on, my mom spent time explaining the story of Jesus to me. We all have someone. Maybe you have more than someone, but you have at least one person. And this story that, that Paul talks about, we know and understand because of that person. I wonder how often we are thankful for that person who has told us this story. One of the things that I would hope that, that we could do as a church is, is we consider this, everyone has someone, that I have someone, that we would take time to say thank you to them. Maybe this week. Maybe it's something that's happened recently in your life, and you can reach out and say, thank you so much for, for telling me this story. Maybe like Chuck Akers, it was 70 years ago, and you need to reach back, and Chuck, if you can still remember that person. I don't know who it is, but we all have someone that has shared this story with us. The second thing I've kind of reflected on is that everyone is someone. Everyone has someone, and yet everyone is someone. As we read through this story, we see words like uh, talking about us, like blessed, love, chosen. Each one of us, our lives are significant. So significant that God has set this rescue plan in motion. If you're a human being, you're made in the image of God. You are someone significant enough that God loves you, would send his son to die for you. Everyone is someone. These big words like, like chosen, predestined, God is involved, this plan that he has for us. I think those words are important because I've, what I've found is that there's a couple kind of myths that we buy into. One is that we're not worthy. How can anyone like us? How can anyone love us. There's this kind of outlook on our life that uh, we feel like we're, we're not worth the time of day. There's been things that have happened to us in the past that just destroy us, destroy our self-esteem. 
being overlooked for things, being passed up, being rejected. And yet Paul's reminding the church, there's this God that loves you. You are someone. Your life is significant. I think the second thing that maybe happens is we take this idea of us being chosen and and we think it's all about us. We live this life that feels entitled. The world owes me something. And I think what's interesting is this chosenness is never chosen for ourselves. But it's this idea that we've been chosen for God's purposes, to be a certain kind of people here on earth. We've been blessed to be a blessing. And we give our lives to what God is doing. Everyone is someone. There's something significant that has been given to you. This summer as a church, we looked at uh, the, the, the spiritual gifts that God has placed in our lives, these things that he's given us to join him in this uh, kingdom movement here on earth. We find that all of us have been blessed in different ways with passions, abilities, empowered by the Spirit. Your life is a gift. God's chosen you to be a part of the story of his work here on earth. This plays out in the church, obviously, but it plays out in more ways than that. A couple of years ago when we were in Texas, my wife and I, we had a friend uh, who worked for the Texas Rangers. Uh, he was in kind of the, the front office in corporate sales, super fun uh, person. And uh, we're kind of connected with him. Marcy went to college with, with him and his wife. And um, he wasn't like a super spiritual guy. Uh, really fun, fun person, but was always like, Oh, the church, you know, religion, big words like Ephesians chapter one. And we had a couple guys that were that he was connected with that were in like full time ministry. And I remember we'd get together and we would talk and kind of sh- we'd always catch up on what we're doing in life. And we'd be working for the church. We had another friend that was working for this discipleship organization. And then we'd get to this guy. His name was Guy, by the way. <laughs> and he'd always be like, "Man, I it's so like you guys get a, you're around ministry stuff all the time." And, uh, and he's like, my job is, my job is so stressful. I'm, I'm always I'm working with these like, you know, huge accounts, you know, trying to keep clients happy. And then and, and I come to church on Sunday, and I hear your stories about what you guys are doing for God. And he's like, I just I don't feel like I, I get to do anything. And I remember one of my friends that worked for this discipleship organization said, but think about where God has placed you in this world. Like what you get to do, working for the Texas Rangers, you get to rub shoulders with Nolan Ryan, George W. sits in, like, the second row. Like, you're around some of the city's most influential people. And your life is something. You've been placed strategically to love those people, to share the story of God's redemption with them. You get access to people that we don't get access to. And he was like, great, now I'm going to have to actually do something about it, right? (laughs) All of us, you are someone. You're a part of the story where God has loved you, redeemed you. He's empowering you for your life to be a gift to those around you. Everyone is someone. And also as I reflect on this passage and on this story that Paul is proclaiming, I'm reminded that everyone needs someone. Everyone needs someone. The reason that you're uh, in a relationship with God, you're here, my guess is that Someone has reached out to you. Everyone has someone. But every day, much like my friend Guy, we're around people that need to hear this story. Everyone needs someone. There's this proclamation that we carry 
that we find here in Ephesians 1 of this work of salvation that God is doing in this world. Everyone needs someone. Do we have a heightened sense of awareness of those in this world around us? That we know that they need this. Last week as we talked about how Ephesus was formed, the the church in Ephesus, we looked at that story in Acts chapter 19. There was this riot in Ephesus. It was this wild story. One of the things that we found is that church was started in a school, the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And the whole region of Asia Minor, here's the word of God. This proclamation that comes from this church plant that starts in a school, everyone hears this message. I want to be a church that understands that everyone needs someone. And we have this heightened sense of awareness that we carry this message. Not that we have agendas, but that we have love. And we connect with people with this message. Our hope today is that you would be the one for the world. That your life would be the one to those around you. We have big words like evangelism that explain this, but it's really just sharing the story that you would be the one for someone else. Each week we we celebrate this story as well. We spend a time of remembering the story of what God has done, and we proclaim it. And we, we remember through this act of communion. It's the sacred act that we do each week. Tim's going to come up and uh, close us in a time of prayer and reflection as we remember what God has done. And today, as we move to the communion table and we remember this story, this historical, theological story, we remember, but we also proclaim this idea of the Eucharist is this idea that God's body was broken open on the cross. We take a piece of bread and we break it open and we consume it, being reminded of this act. We take juice that represents the blood of Christ that was poured out and shed on the, on the cross. We believe that this, is, uh, this blood uh, washes away our sin, our brokenness, the ways that we get it wrong. Through the breaking open of the body of Christ and the pouring out of his blood comes healing and hope to the world. Now as the body of Christ, as a church, a collective group of people who are a part of this much bigger story, we do the same thing. We remember and we proclaim, and our life becomes a gift to those around us. A couple things to reflect on today. One is everyone has something, has someone. Maybe you just need to be reminded of that person in your life. Maybe it's someone in the past that they might not even know how important they were. Maybe you need to reflect on that, give thanks. Maybe you need to reach out to that person. Be reminded that everyone is someone, that your life was so significant, that God loves you so much, that he would send Jesus to the cross to bring about redemption for it. Your life is significant and can be used as a gift. And everyone needs someone. Maybe you need to reflect on, have God put on your heart the people around you that you know need this message, the message of salvation? Let me, let me pray, and when you're ready, you can move to the communion tables and spend some time reflecting on these words. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this day. 
We thank you for this passage of, of Scripture, Lord, this letter that was written almost 2,000 years ago. And as we read these words, we see how Paul reminds the church, Lord, of their story of salvation. We want to be reminded, Lord, of what you've done in our life, of the people that you've placed. So often we take them for granted. Lord, I pray that you would give us vision, wisdom, power to know that our lives mean something. You're inviting us into this great story. You would stir in our hearts, Lord, to be who you've called us to be. You would give us an urgency to know that we are a part of eternal things. Lord, let us have a, an awareness of those around us that we would be bold with your message, that we'd be wise with your message, that you'd empower us with your Holy Spirit, that our life would become a gift to others. Lord, we ask these things in your name.